1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. My name is Julie Fetty. I'm host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Nanxiu Qian, the author of Politics, Poetics, and Gender in Late Qing China. The subtitle is Shui Hui and the Era of Reform, which has been recently published by Stanford University Press. Welcome, Nanxiu.
0: Hi, Julie.
1: Thanks so much for being with us. So let me just tell listeners about who you are, and then we'll get into the story of your book. Okay, thanks. Nanshu is a professor of Chinese literature in the Chao Center for Asian Studies here at Rice University. She's a colleague of mine, and we work down the hall from each other. Her fields are classical Chinese literature. Uh, she specializes in women and gender, Chinese intellectual history, and Transnational Study of Traditional Eastern Asian Cultures, as well as Comparative Literature. Nan-Chu received her MA from Nanjing University and her PhD from Yale. She's published in both English and Chinese. Her previous book is called Spirit and the Self in Medieval China, and she has been a co-author and co-editor of several books. She has also published Poems, essays, plays, and a newly completed traditional Chinese opera following the life of the most famous Chinese woman poet, Li Qingzhao. Her research has received grants from the National Endowment for Humanities and the ACLS. So welcome again, Nanshu.
0: Thank you, Julie. Thank you for your very generous introduction. Well, um,
1: it's really just a biography of you, Nanchu, so <laughs> you have a good reason to be proud. So Would you tell us, how did you come to write this book, Politics, Poetics, and Gender, in late Qing China?
0: Yes. Um, It evolved from my first English monograph. Uh, You just told the audience, it's uh, uh, called Spirit and Self in Medieval China. Um, This monograph was uh, a study on an early medieval Chinese classic called A New Account of Tales of the World, which recorded the free spirit of the early medieval time, and that's from 220 to 420 CE. Um, It has a chapter on independent and strong-minded intellectual women, and it was titled uh, "Worthy Ladies. Um, This word, ladies, this this chapter, then later, formed a tradition, and uh, it has had a decisive impact on later women, particularly intellectual, literate women. When I did research, after I finished my first monograph, when it was uh, in press, I started research on my next book project, to compare this worthy ladies' tradition with another more conservative Confucian moral abided example women tradition, which was uh, basically uh, written by men in official histories. Um, so these two traditions fascinated me because only by Working on the two traditions, could I really paint a a fuller picture about Chinese women to change the uh, general impression like uh, Chinese women in the tradition were obedient, subservient? Not really. Because we also had a very open-minded, strong-willed, those kind of intellectual, learned women. During my research, I... Uh, ran across a book called Biographies of Foreign Women, written and compiled, translated and compiled by Xue Shaohui and her, her husband, which was published in 1906. And I was immediately attracted by it because number one, I didn't know that we had such an early introduction, a systematic introduction of 300 basically Western women to the Chinese audience. The book was forgotten. I didn't know, even though I I was a scholar. Number two, I didn't know that uh, a woman writer, Xue Shahui, could be so outspoken when she uh, uh, when she published uh, she she initiated the project, demanded her husband to do research through several hundred books. And then she compiled the book. She made the uh, frame of the book. And she, I discovered the quarrel between the couple from their prefaces, each Wrote a preface and published with this volume. From the prefaces, I could see how daring this woman woman was back in that early time period. And that totally subverted my understanding of women in the tradition as subservient. And I could tell that she was an independent. and uh, a, a woman who has had her own ideas, purpose. She played this uh, think leading thinker for women reformers of the time, which we the history totally missed. This part of history being forgotten. That was when I got interested in her. But uh, the reason that I really triggered out. And pushing me into writing on her, uh, there is another interesting story. Would you like me to tell you about it? I'd love to hear it. Okay. Um, I, my original project was compared to traditions. So I didn't really have a plan to work on her. She, I, I, I could have used her biographies of foreign women as one of my uh, materials, but not her. But then I attended a wrong conference. I was supposed to go in October 1997 at the University of Colorado border for a conference titled uh, WBAOS, meaning West Branch of Association for Oriental Studies. Hmm. I received a letter from WBAAS, meaning West Branch of Association for Asian Studies. Without looking into it, the letter carefully, I applied for that uh, WBAAS, thinking it was WBAOS. Submitted my abstract, uh, booked the flight. I thought everything was taken care of until I received an email from somebody I didn't even know saying, sorry, you are too late when we cannot accept your abstract. And I was very, very surprised. And I returned an email back saying, how dare you? I was <laughs> attending this conference on a yearly basis. Nobody said a no to me. And, uh, and uh, you know, what should I do now with the flights? And the guy said, if you want to join us, it's okay. We're taking good care of you because you're alone and uh falling to the south. Nobody takes care of you. So just be grateful, okay? If you want to come, you come. <laughs> so I went. And it's late October, it was snowing, my boots are leaking, and I was crying. And then this one morning at eight o'clock we had a session, 40 people in the room, and we really walked in the snow for 10 minutes to get to the meeting place. And then after two papers, we had nothing to do because two people, presenters, didn't even bother to come. So the chair said, oh, now we are trapped here. It's hard for us to go back to the hotel in the snow. So who wants to read a paper? And everybody looks at everybody else. Then somebody pointed her finger to me, saying she has a paper. She didn't get uh, accepted. She was crying. So everybody was looking at me, saying, okay, why don't you read your paper? I said, come on, you didn't examine my paper, and uh, my paper is in classical time period, and this meeting is on modern time period. So, no. And they said, okay, so what's in your hand? You have a paper here in your hand, right? And that was the last chapter of my previous monograph. And it it, it was on the time period because the monograph this you uh, kind of tells of the world. This book has many many imitations, and that chapter was on the late the the, the very last imitation creating the modern time. So you said see, it fits our conference. So please read it for us. I said uh, I have forty pages. Impossible. I can shorten it to fifteen page uh, to fifteen minutes talk. No way. Then they said, okay, let's vote. So they voted. Oh, anonymously saying I should read paper. <laughs> so that's the first time I tasted American democracy. <laughs> so I read the paper, and the people got an interested in whatever I had to say. They came to invite me to next year's AS. Uh, not a WBAS, but a real AS in Washington, D.C. And then I thought, okay, maybe I can use this topic of foreign women biographies to present. And it was well accepted. And then I was invited to publish the paper. So I decided to do more research on this woman. I went to the Library of Congress next door to the meeting place, and there I found a huge collection of her poetry and prose in the traditional style. Quickly going through it, I found, my gosh, I found a piece of treasure. She is really somebody I have to spend my next decade on her. Mm-hmm. Forget about my comparison of the two traditions. I have to work on her first. That's the reason I, I I started this topic, and it indeed took me more than a decade to finish it.
1: Well, congratulations! As it's Thank finished you. now, and and what a what a wonderful anecdote about the hazards of research and the hazards of conference attendance. <laughs> I
0: know that's our life, isn't it? Yes.
1: <laughs> so tell us about um, the arguments of your book. What did you What did you want to tell about um, Sui Shaohui?
0: Okay. Um. What? Okay, let me start from here to give you a general idea for, about the structure of the book. Mm-hmm. Overall, in my introduction, I want to uh, to tell my my readers why this book, what's the purpose for me to write this book. Two purposes. First, by writing this book, uh, focusing on Xue Shaohui and. Uh, Her intellectual networks is not just her. She was among a group of reformers, men and women, forgotten by the modern time period. So by working on them, I want to fill out a huge gap in the transition from the traditional China into its modern times at the turn of the 20th century. And from the perspectives of women and gender. You see, um, by studying her and her intellectual works, we discover an alternate path, a path, path other than violent revolutions and dictatorships that have dominated modern China. We also find women's active participation in the related social, political, and cultural reforms. Both have been largely forgotten and ignored in modern Chinese historiography in China and in the West. Second, by working on Xiu Xia and her friends, I want to emphasize the importance of literature, especially classical Chinese poetry. I argue, you know, since the early 20th century, Classical uh, Chinese tradition being severely criticized by nationalists, arguing like uh, China was beaten up by Western imperialism and Japanese imperialism simply because our culture was backward, our tradition was awful. So everything was destroyed. And these past 100 years, particularly under the communist regime, the destruction of our culture has been horrible. I would argue, in fact, classical China, the Chinese tradition and classical Chinese poetry can intimately convey the intellectuals' response to the changing world, and hence can offer us authentic information about transformation of both the world and the intellectuals themselves. So, when the this traditional literature being forgotten or 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 destroyed we miss that very important knowledge and information to understand that time period. Um, Women's poetic response especially, because of their marginalized positions, women's poetic response can offer more objective viewpoints than men's more ideologically framed ideas. So that's my introduction. Uh, should I continue?
1: Yes. Well, tell us these. Tell us about the part one with the with the is marriage it? trope that you
0: that oh. you use throughout the first three chapters of part one. Okay, sure. The book is divided into two parts. Part one is the making of future reformers, and the subtitle is a marriage between the two cultures. So this marriage is both literally and metaphysically. Um. Part two would be revitalizing the worthy ladies tradition because I would argue in my first part how uh, women reformers became women reformers because they continued this great worthy ladies tradition. Okay. Part one covers from 1866 to 1897. Why this time period? Xu Xiahui was born in the year 1866. And uh, her life before 1897, before the reform movement started, in fact reflected the, a culture called the, the Ming, writing women culture. And this culture inherited from World Lady's idea of China's waiting time period from 220 CE to 420 CE. Uh, subject of my first English monograph. This um, worthy Lady's idea evolved from the Taoist perfected person idea. Perfected person is an androgynous personality who embodies nature and who nurtures and protects the world with her motherly care, strengthened by her talents and quick judgment enabled by her broader learning. And this one has a special impact on Ming. Ming means today's Fujian, on these women, on the culture formed in the late imperial time period. They inherited this and then prepared them to be strong-minded, very alert towards the world, changes, Always eager to learn more for the purpose to protect the family, the culture, and even the state and I have many many examples to show how strong these women were now, very interestingly, at the same year when Sha Hui was born, another baby called and and the quarter was also born. And this baby is called a Fuzhou Navy yacht That's chinese uh, uh china uh, uh the manchu state down to the common scholars their response to western uh uh in invasions because China was beaten up uh during the opium wars by western cannons and uh, guns. And ships, so the Chinese uh, courtiers, uh, you know, government and uh, and common intellectuals, they decided that we need our own navy yard. But this navy yard actually uh, was with very uh, much help from the uh, French uh, technicians and uh, uh, scholars, and also. Uh, British technicians and scholars. And then the founder of this Navy Yard, Shen Baozhen, the, the minister of, uh, of Navy, also decided to open a school affiliated to this Navy Yard. And this school and the Navy Yard itself together they formed a combination of traditional Chinese learning and Western learning. All the students there from local poor scholarly family, because the rich kids would have tutors to go for uh, civil examinations. They wouldn't bother to learn Western knowledge. Poor scholarly kids, poor scholar family kids would uh, come to this school. And uh, Xie Xiaohui's brother-in-law, Chen Jitong, and then um, her future husband, Chen Shoupong, both graduated from this navy school, they had to spend six to nine years to in this school, and then after their graduation, they had to go to the west. That's how Chen Jitong became a diplomat in Paris for sixteen years. Chen Shoupeng also spent three to four years in Europe. Students sent there, graduates sent there, also had to go to school to learn both. Uh, Western cultures and Western technologies and sciences. So this school and this Navy Yard really trained the first Chinese um, diplomats, scientists, translators, and all that. It's a great, perfect combination of both traditions. And then these poor kids, after they graduated from school, they had to get married they married the local women, and uh, of course, intellectual women, writing women. That's how the third chapter will talk about the marriage of the two, and literally and metaphorically, Xue Xiahui was married to Chen pang This marriage exposed Xue Xiahui, originally a very good, already a good writer, good uh, uh, po- uh, poet. Now she's opened to the west. And Chen shou during his three to four years in the West, sent back many beautiful gifts. And every gift, he would attach to it some explanations about its uh, uh, scientific or historical cultural significances. So would you like to uh, uh, read a poem that uh, can show both her uh, knowledge and newly uh um, acquired a knowledge about western science, and that poem also shows her an, an passionate love for an attachment to her husband
1: yes, yes,
0: would you read it in chinese and then i could write uh read it in english you read it first in english no i read it in chinese okay I'll could you read- also explain the topic would you like to yes you you do so. I do. Okay. So this poem is a poem written after the husband is in the back, a a Swiss watch. And that watch, of course, is beautiful, inlaid with uh, diamonds or things like that. And she really loved it. In particular, the husband also inscribed on this watch uh, a, a inscription, beautiful inscription and which she incorporated into her poem. So why don't you read the poem, uh, Judy? Okay.
1: I'll read the first stanza in English. Yes. Sure. And it goes like this. Mm. See the watch hands turning round and round, like the water clock in the Wan Palace. Tenderly, it delivers a light tick-tock, marking each brief moment. Inside the axis shines the splendor of metal, there is also an inscription of classical elegance. Quote, One heart, though ten thousand miles apart, unquote. terse words of deep affection, keenly touch
0: my innermost feelings. Yes, thank you, Julie. Let me read it in Chinese. 碳团乱循环旋绕，宛若原始功劳，单默默。<laughs> Wen So that's it. It's really from my Chinese eyes, I, could, uh, I, I couldn't do justice to the original beauty of the Chinese poem. Um, it's beautiful.
1: And she wrote that uh, in response to her husband sending her this Swiss watch um, from abroad while he was away, right? Um, yes. in, engaging in Western culture. And she, in this poem, expresses her admiration for Western technology, which exhibits her own openness as well to outside culture.
0: Indeed, indeed. So, and uh, the, also this uh, this watch, because you can tell the time so precisely, kind of just serves, uh, on the one hand, tell her, oh, time goes so fast, and my, I'm getting older, because the later poem uh, will talk about this, Not that's the worry of a woman, I'll lose my beauty when <laughs> she comes back. But on the other hand, it makes me feel, oh my gosh, the time goes so slowly waiting for him is so unbearable. The entire poem is three standards, really beautiful. Yes. yes. Okay. Now,
1: before we move on to chapter four, um, Nanxiu, could you just back up and tell us a little bit about Xue's, um brother-in-law, Chen Jig-tong, who lived so many years in France, ultimately became a kind of emissary for Chinese culture in Europe. Um, and he published many books, Um Explaining Chinese culture to to the French and to the to the West in general, and so can you just tell us about that openness? How extraordinary was this family at that time?
0: Sure, um, Chen Jitong, the brother-in-law, really was a great influence on Xue Shaohui. Now, Chen Jitong, as I said, went to school as the first um, class uh, of a student, and he. He is uh, um, originally. He was uh, assigned to learn uh, how to make ships, and uh, his major foreign language was was French. He was so such an outstanding student that eventually, when his fellow students were sent out to France in 1877 to continue their study. He was among them to continue his study, but assigned to study law, French law or Western law, history and political science. And there, he was also assigned to be the secretary, to be the assistant to the director who took students there. He was very important and very trusted. That started his diplomatic career. He went there, he befriended all the important men there, including the founder of the Third Republic of France. Um, And many uh, scientists, historians, and all that. He published eight books, six in French, and two in English, to introduce Chinese culture to the West. In all these books, he defended Chinese culture. He especially told the world how wonderful writing women were. He criticized the Western uh, despise against their blue socks. He told the world, like uh, our women, if they knew how to write, they would immediately raise up their status quo. But that really something new to the world, because the world of his time had some bad impressions about China, about, uh, you know, the abuse of Chinese women, particularly the bona feet problem. I think Chen Jitong made an effort for the world to know about China, and he was extremely successful. His book is a major work called the, uh, Chinese Opinion by Themselves, it's a response to Western sketches about the uh, Chinese so-called uh, Chinese characters of China or Chinese people. was reprinted in two years, 11 times. Translated into English at the same year, that was 19, sorry, 1884. Translated into English, Portuguese, German, Spanish. And uh, uh, his other books, too, now in every major library in the West, in Paris, in London, in Washington, D.C., in Berkeley, in Stanford, they all have his collections acceptable in China, and very unfortunately. Why he was forgotten, I'll try to explain at the end. He's being forgotten just the same as Xiu Xiaoyu was forgotten because they represented another path for China to change a rather peaceful, smooth, and uh, more towards a constitutional um, and republican state. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, uh, The other thing to show his success was that uh, he married two French women at the same time. (laughs) Those were mad in love with him, and uh, I have, as I I talked in my book, uh, why he was so attractive. Where is? Yeah, a prisoner. <laughs> and and they, they
1: accompanied him back to China and met Sui, of course. And Sui, along with one of these French wives, um, developed this campaign for women's education, right, that you discuss in Chapter 4? Yes, yes. So Thank why you. don't you tell us about that? So her, her brother-in-law, her husband, bring back many Western ideas into China. She's right at the forefront of of receiving that kind of information from the outside, and she's already engaged in her own
0: reformist projects. Yes. Yes, thank you. That's a good, good, good transition from part one to part two. Part two, as I just said, revitalizing the wordy ladies' tradition, uh, focuses on Xie Xiaohui and her women comrades from the year 1898 to 1911. Okay. Chapter four immediately got into a campaign. Xu Shanhui participated in at the invitation of her brother-in-law and her husband. What happened was, um, 1894, the Sino-Japanese War took place, and that war totally destroyed Chinese confidence in themselves because China and uh, and, and Japan began their reform towards reform reformation towards the modern time period transition towards the modern time period about the same time but Japan, after the war, Japan showed them its muscles really you you know it's a wrong observation, wrong judgment by only judging by the military part unfortunately both The Japanese government and the Chinese government uh, took that seriously. Well, it was serious enough, but not. uh, my argument is Chinese men should not take that uh, defeat as the symbol, like we should uh, eliminate all our traditions. Mm -hmm. But by all means, they said, okay, now, only by transforming technology and sciences, uh, not enough. We have to change our political system, which was right. But how to change it for which purpose? That's very debatable. And men also another good move for them was we also have to educate women. But the motivation of educating Chinese women was also wrong because, like the leading reformer, main reformer Liang Qichao, extremely famous. You know, before I wrote this book, the previous scholarship on this time period, the transition the late imperial China into modern time period from late 19th century to, to early 20th century exclusively focused on Liang Qichao and his teacher, mm-hmm. Kang Yehwei. I was about the first one to change the major focus from these main reformers to others, to women reformers and supporters, such as Chen Jitong, Chen Shopen, et etc. Mm-hmm. So these male reformers, this had a particularly Liang Qichao, he published an essay on women's education in the early 1897. He said, uh, China is backward precisely because our women, half of our population, are lazy, idle, stupid, they don't want to go out to work. They bogged uh, as women uh, men down, they made China backward. You know, he's repeating the conventional discourse, always blaming women as troublemakers. Mm-hmm. And I think this is common, right? You have Helen of Troy, we have many farm fatals in our tradition to blame. Mm-hmm. So it's like a modernized blame on women. And uh, so we have we need this campaign. Well, Xiu Sha when when men sketched, you know, the campaign's major purpose to was to to establish a, a girls' school. You know, we had a girls' school before that, but by missionaries. This would be the first girls' school opened by Chinese, and uh, uh, they planned to do it uh, in their own. Because missionary schools were teach foreign subjects. They plan this one should do it on our own terms. Now, when they sketched all these provisional principles and regulations, all that, Chen Qitong and another leader, Jing Yuan Shan, they said, wait a minute, we need to ask for women's opinions. By the time, because they want to follow the Western model, so they had uh, Chen Jitong's, uh the first French wife, uh, uh, her Chinese name is Lai Ma Yi. I, I find her French name as well. And uh, she was already signed She already signed up to to be part of it. But uh, Chen Jitong and, uh, and uh, Jing Yuan Shang said we also need to ask for opinions from Chinese women's side. And that's really a very wise decision. Thus shall we published a long essay in response to and made many, many suggestions from her viewpoint. And in this long essay, published in the newspapers, published in several newspapers, she made clear. She immediately, at the very outset, she said it's very unfair to call us lazy, stupid, etc. We previously, we followed your men your, your men's instructions to stay home because they had a segregation law. They had a, this inner altered domains, which was not entirely wrong. Um, please read uh, Susan Mann Dorothy Kuhn's books on dating PR China. Before uh, the yeah, agricultural society, women stayed home, but they were doing sewing, weaving, silkworm, feeding, and educating kids. Mm-hmm. Well, those were real jobs for them. And she said, we did these wonderful jobs. And we also, many of us, also managed to learn. And we had an excellent, outstanding pose. In fact, Lady Imperial China produced more than 6,000 volumes uh, 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 collections of women's poetry and anthologies. Mm-hmm. But forgotten by the modern times. Oh, she said, we did a wonderful job. Now, okay, you want a girls' school? Sure, we want to come out to take education. But our education is not just, we won't be satisfied by just to learn some basic things to, uh, to make a living for us. No, not enough. We want to be on the equal basis to take education, the same as you men are taking. And we want to have all the great updated knowledge Pastor, president, Western and Chinese. Mm -hmm. Then the purpose is for us to walk out of our household to stand on the equal ground with your men to be selected by the state to serve the state. So it's an open demand that uh, to have equal educational and political rights with men. And uh, her idea was got enthusiastic uh, response from fellow women reformers. They together, they formed, uh, organized the first women's society which had the first ever Chinese women uh, meeting, conference, I would Mm -hmm. call it, uh, in Shanghai uh, on December the 6th, 1897. 120 Chinese Women, 120 Westerners signed up. Westerners, we had men and women. And they were extremely supportive. The Western women and Chinese women. Western women were diplomats, journalists, and missionary wives. And they and Chinese women, they called each other worthy ladies and they called each other sisters.
1: And these worthy ladies, so. Um we're talking about the network, social and educational networks of Sway and her sisters-in-law?
0: Yes, sisters and, and all the other women and men, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, this is a really remarkable moment. The moment when women really walk out into the public space. Because originally, they had a... Precedents, too. You know, worthy ladies in the Weijing, this 220 to uh, 420 CE, women already participated in diplomatic, uh, no, sorry, philosophical debates of the time, but uh, only behind the windows or screens. But there was one, there, there were several occasions they walked into men's space and debated with men and uh, won the debate. Extremely difficult philosophical debates. So we they had these precedences, but then forgotten. And towards the late imperial period, women became more and more confined until now. Xiu Xiahui and her fellow women comrades once again they walked into the public space and they used even popular media. Mm you know, news media to publish their opinions. And then they organize, uh, they publish their own women's journal. That's the first one. And this own women's journal, Uh, Sha-hui served as a leading contributor. And she published the inaugurational issue editorial. And in this editorial, she openly asked for women, asked women, to break the inner outer domains, to work together with men, uh, for the reform uh, projects. So it's really a very remarkable moment. And then they also established their their uh, women's school. Everything was handled by women. So women played their own agents, their own thinking leaders, the, and they had their own agendas. That's that their agenda is. They want to put the the improvement of themselves ahead of the empowering of the nation versus men's very nationalistic orientations. It's a very remarkable one. It
1: is. And the journal was remarkable in and of itself. um, And it lasted... A mere one hundred days, perhaps, but the school lasted somewhat longer. Can you tell us about the school? What kind
0: of education was offered to girls? Yes, thank you. The school was a compilation of both Chinese and Western educations. You know, they published those illustrations of the school on their women's journal, and has this beautiful classroom scene. You can see Western map. Western sphere, as well as Chinese books. in it. And uh, they also published uh, uh, illustrations about how women, you borrow Western technology to improve their uh, women's work, such as silk, uh, worm feeding, sewing, uh, weaving, all that. So it's really a very exciting moment when women were opened to the West. And the journal itself published the uh, Women's essays, both in vernacular language and uh, classical tra- traditional uh, style, and uh, poetry, and uh, um, they also had news from the west about Western women. Uh, yeah, it's extremely exciting. The most important thing is everything was written and and uh, or oh, illustrated by women. Mm-hmm. This is totally different from later women's journals when men took over. And uh, although it's called uh, women's journals, but uh, we only, we could only read men's voices from it. Very, very few women's vo- voices could be heard.
1: This is really a delightful chapter, Chapter Four on the Shanghai um, campaigns for women's education. And from what I understand, it was selected. Is this correct? By um, the SAT board for um, an excerpt
0: for one of the tests. Oh, AP test for the AP test by the College Board. Yes, yes, yes. That was interesting. They got they emailed me saying there is one long um, point Published on this women's uh, women's journal, and that expressed women's desire for reform, for equal equal rights, and many many things, even um, marriage of free will. That's really revolutionary. You know, Chinese tradition was arranged marriage. Yes. Yeah the college board asked for me to give them, to release the copyright. And they said, you know, this is non-profit thing, so please don't charge us. And I could have the choice to charge them, right? They would uh, ask for a 15 years contract, and they would uh, print one million copies each year. So, Judy, had I asked for just one cent for each copy, I could be rich. Right? You could retire from <laughs> academia. <laughs> But <laughs> so I said, oh, of course, I was so honored. Of course, I wouldn't charge anything. I would the love that our kids would read about the Chinese women of that time to show they were on the same page with their Western sisters of that time.
1: Yes. Well, it's, it's an honor indeed. So let's move on to chapters five and six about Xue Xiao Hui's, um openness to the West. Tell us, tell us about that and particularly her biography of foreign women.
0: Yes, thank you. Now, the problem with the reform movement was the men's reform movement was it was terminated when Yang Shicai, Kang Youwei, they became very impatient. Then they put the emperor and Empress Dowager into conflict. The Empress Dowager, motivated by her selfishness and brutality, ordered six reformers to be executed. And six reformers were very closely related to Xiu Xiaohui and her family. So Xiu Xiaohui could have been scared to death after hearing this bad news. But no, no way. This strong-minded woman, she immediately could tell the problem. She wrote a poem immediately to criticize the country saying something that Kang we didn't uh, understand enough, how to, how to um, proceed with the reform. And uh, she didn't really agree with the reform agenda in the first place, right? And she said, uh, although six good friends lost their lives, execution, very brutal, I also discussed that one of them was uh, also married uh, to Xiu Xiaohui's uh, good friend. Girlfriend, and uh, that ended in very tragic uh, s- scenario because the girl later, just uh, twenty three years old, almost like a like a like a starved herself to death to die for the husband. That's another page of the story. But uh, let me come back to Xiu Xiaohui Xiu Xiaohui said, "No, our reform is not over." We have to continue. So, you know, not just her, you know, the other women teachers, They, although the newspaper was terminated, they still persisted for to publish another four issues until finally they had to, to stop because the major um, providers um, were all arrested. They didn't have money and didn't have the venue to publish the journal anymore. They somehow managed to continue the girls' school for two years, but eventually they had to close the school. But don't worry, because the school, the journal, already input the seats and uh, pretty soon girls' schools, women's journals, came back, would have come back. Although, as I just said, the, the orientation later became increasingly nationalistic. That's another page of the story, mm-hmm. not a Really, my focus here. Mm -hmm. My focus is Xu Xiahui's continual reform efforts. Now she said, okay, during the campaign, men asked us to follow the Western model. And Xu Xiahui indeed asked for a Western model. Okay, Yang Qichao, you told us that we should follow Western women. They got education, they became learned, so they became very capable citizens for the country. Now, give us a good example. And then she said, Oh, Joan of Arc. And she always said, oh, Wait a minute. Joan of Arc was illiterate. She's not a learned woman. I need a real learned like women through education. They became learned, talented, and they could serve the country, the family, the local. Community well. I need those kind of examples. Since main, main reformers couldn't provide any example, Xiu Xiaoyu turned back to her husband, saying, Okay, you do the research, because Xiu Xiaoyu couldn't read foreign languages, so her husband could. You do the research, I'll do the writing. So the husband and researched through several hundred books. I, I even Located, many of them, uh, in our founder library. And uh, then um, they together worked on 720 days <laughs> on this book. <laughs> every night, you know, they, they were basic people. They had jobs to do. Xiu We had to take care of five kids and uh, also attending her in-laws. So Xiu Shaohui said, okay, they worked every night, and the husband would read from oral translator from the original resor- uh, original sources she shall we jotted down the notes and then put them together into a volume when Xu shall compiled it, the husband and wife had many fights about how to classify them, which standards we should use there and uh, please read my book, you'll see how interesting uh, their argument is not that the we even there to. Publicized the arguments itself tells us a lot about this woman, about her uh, and, and courage and desire to be on the equal ground with men, with, particularly with her husband. The volume introduced over 300 women classified into 12 categories from the uh, sovereign to writing women. So about uh, um, over 100 were those women scholars, poets, novelists, writers. Last the purpose, major focus. And uh, um, um, including some uh, uh, mathematicians, uh, astronomers, uh, scientists, the Western world only got to know them in the 1970s hmm. but uh, yeah i have harder the evidence there
1: wow so this biography of foreign women published by sue and her husband is is quite uh, extraordinary too and uh, as well they've translated a number of scientific and technological um information right into chinese from from the west but Introducing it to China via literature, right? So I'm thinking of Jules Verne and their translation of "Around the World in 80 Days."
0: Yes, um, that's fascinating. Um, "Around the World in 80 Days" was published sometime in 18 in the 1880s, right? Yeah. And in the, and Chen Shoupeng got to read it probably in the West, and he told. Her wife about this book, so they decided to translate it into Chinese. And uh, that was their first publication of a transnational work in 1990. Okay. And they meant this to be a textbook for the Chinese to understand Western civilizations and history. And uh, yeah. And the book they added many, many footnotes. they uh preserved like uh, they transliterated those uh, uh names of places, people, newspapers, but they also preserved the original language for people to know exactly what kind of language it was and uh, and uh, for people' kind of exposure. To Chinese people about foreign languages. The most interesting part was about it is uh, the uh, 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 geography, uh, astronomy, and uh, um, technology, and how to build uh, railroads, all that. The railroad was uh, back then in China was still a very new thing. The most interesting part. moment was their attitude towards uh, the Mormons. And they kind of defended moments. That was another interesting chapter about uh, how they tried to uh, enlighten Chinese people about Western history. The moments, because uh, one after another the moment leaders seemed to be persecuted by the Chinese government. Not a problem remind them of the six martyrs being killed by the Manchu. Government. So here you do see a very interesting moment that Xiosha and her husband stood by marginalized groups of people. Uh, right or wrong, I think and that's open for readers to understand. The other important thing is that uh, she kind of twisted a little bit the translation in order to make the, the female character there the female character originally in uh, uh, in Jules uh, in Jules, Jules Verne's version was quite a mute but she, under her transition, she became a, a feminist standing up um courageous to claim her love and uh, at one point in the uh, in the train she even uh, picked up pistols to defend and the passengers. That's a very interesting moment. She also translated a romantic story, and by um, and by a woman, British woman writer, called the, um, uh, Ellen Fowler. And it, that's so ima- amazing. They could uh, publish a book, uh, just publish. They could translate a book and have it published in two years. Like that book was. Uh, was published in, in London, was in 1889, no, 18, 1899. And they had it translated, published in Shanghai, uh, 1901 already. Mm-hmm. And the remarkable moment is that she took this advantage in her translation to input something about Western political system. In uh, foreign women biographies, she created a goddess world and made it a republican, a women's state for women to escape from men's brutality. And uh, the double thread at the end, she twisted the ending by promoting a uh, republican system, uh, equal rights, all that. It's cute, you this know. Is the
1: British novel.
0: Yeah, it's British novel. Mm-hmm. I I had all these comparisons there, and uh, uh, and the other important thing is she also used a Chinese classical Chinese style, you know, parallel prose, poetry, and uh, classical novel style. But uh, try to make it more and more e- easier and easier for people to read. She used this classical literary style to introduce Western sciences and and the technology. That's interesting. interesting.
1: Tell us, we're running out of time, Nanshu. Tell us quickly about um, your topic of Chapter 8, Shui's poetic response to late imperial reforms. So, um, you know, we have the end of the hundred days and it turned very bloody. And how did she use poems to express her thoughts on politics?
0: Yes, she used her poems basically to criticize the, this is very courageous because uh, at the time even men, they are not the most uh, reform-minded men, they are not criticized the Empress Dowager, but she and her family they openly criticized this brutality in their poetry and uh, her last 10 years overlapped with the last mental efforts to for reform because uh, uh, immediately after uh, the Empress Dowager cracked down the uh, reform movement then Baxi Rebellion took place. The Emperor Dowager stupidly declared a war to all the eight nations. I guess everybody probably is familiar with this very stupid uh, Time period and this piece of picture. Then eight joined forces entered Beijing. The Emperor's daughter took, kidnapped his son, the Emperor, adopted son, to escape. When she finally came back, she kind of understood she had to continue the reform. So she did a reform even more than the reformers wanted to do. But it was very selfish reasons. She wanted to survive. Understand the body. Gradually, Xu Xiaohui's family supported a, a few courtiers and important statesmen of the time to issue constitutional reform. This uh, basically Chinese courtiers, Chinese statesmen, Chinese said Chinese. You know, the Manchu the regime. Was non-Chinese regime, another quite a complicated picture of Chinese history. They wanted to do a kind of British constitutional model, meaning giving more power to the parliament and the local provincial layers. The Empress Dowager and her supporters, on the contrary, they want to follow the Japanese model, to have more power in the royal house hands. Xiu Sha-hui and her family joined us, and Xiu Sha-hui even played. She, she was the editorial writer for a new constitutional journal, a um, daily, actually, a daily, an official daily, published mm-hmm. by the governor of the South. And her husband and uh, brother-in-law were serving surf- on the staff. She was invited to draft editorial for this new daily. And that editorial tried to tell people what a constitutional structure is, and uh, along with many scientific and uh, all kinds of knowledge, showing her exquisite writing style and extremely broad knowledge about modern time period. And she always tells people, trying to tie the... Reform ideas to the Chinese tradition. The purpose is for people, for people to get easier access to all this. And she was quite successful in doing that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, because the Manchu regime didn't want to follow all these good advices, too selfish. Xiao Shaohui could could recognize that. Her last long poem about her reform movement, very nice. She wrote many many long poems. I named her poem as kind of a poetic history of late Qing China. Originally I want to use that as my book title, but uh, my editor wanted it to be like uh, they could uh, for easier for people to search. So they have a gender po- poetics, politics instantly. But anyway, it's really a, a very important poetic history about China of that time period. And her last long poem. She already sensed that uh, problem. So the poem ended uh, in a bit, uh, some pessimistic way. I never read any kind of pessimistic tone in her other poems until this one. Mm-hmm. So now when I look back, I could tell this woman she could foresee the problems. She could foresee that uh, the constitutional reform would fail, that China would enter a very difficult time period. She was right. She died on the eve of the Republican Revolution, which, was, which initiated the bloody 100-year history of China in the modern times. So the last conclusion I talked about, uh, why Xu Xiaogui and her, her comrades were totally forgotten along with their newspapers, the reform movement, their publications. This doesn't mean that they didn't have influence at the time. It doesn't mean that their work, their efforts were insignificant. It only tells us that modern China had made its own choice. The choice was the revolutionary sons preferred more nationalistic and a violent sister. You know, they later women's journals tend to be very violent. Following social Darwinism, they called upon bloody termination of the Manchu regime because they were barbarians. And then even further the Communist Revolution again repeated this. Women again became the subservient followers of men's new revolutionary patriarchy to repeat their discourse. And these revolutionary men choose revolutionary women, violent women, over their more culturally abided, traditional tradition abided, more smooth, but more creative, original, uh, Women reformers. I think that's very unfortunate. So I feel it's my duty today to read, to tell the story, this story, missing page of Chinese history to the world.
1: And that's exactly what your book does. So thank you for writing it, Nan Shu. You you resurrect not only the reform movement that's been forgotten, but but particularly the women's role in that reform. So. Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you so much. And would you mind just telling before we wrap up what you're planning to do in a next book project, perhaps?
0: Oh, yes. So now I have to go back to my promise to myself to do the comparison of the two traditions, the wordy ladies versus the example women tradition. And now I have expanded it into the realm of the entire Sinosphere, meaning China, Japan, Korea and Vietnam because all four countries share the similar cultural tradition and uh, share this, the same writing system, classical Chinese and uh, they, every country produced the works uh, following these two genres. it's very challenging and, uh, and uh, exciting.
1: Well, I think it was a wonderful detour that you took, and I wish you luck in, in going back to that original project. And thank you again for talking to us, Nanshu Qian, about your book today. The book is called Politics, Poetics, and Gender in Late Qing China, Chishua Wei and the Era of Reform. So thank you again, Nanshu. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Judy. Bye-bye.